Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 315, part one of my conversation with University of Texas at Arlington Coordinator of Percussion Activities and Concertizing Percussionist Andrew Eldridge. We'll check back in with Andrew shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou. We are in a very busy time of year. I mean, all fall semesters are busy, frankly. But this period is particularly packed. We just concluded our Champion of Champions High School Band Festival this weekend, which went over well and was handled very effectively, particularly by all of our graduate teaching assistants, since they are the front lines of defense on that. In particular, our undergrad Marching Mizzou members did very well, as did our assistant director of bands, Dr. Christian Noon, who was the head organizer for this event. We also got together a really good group of judges and were blessed with great weather throughout. This upcoming weekend is homecoming, and we'll have bands for our annual parade. It's also midterms, so yeah, it's a lot going on. I also want to point out that last week and the previous week's guest, Matt McClung, just posted an incredible video of a particular minute of our podcast conversation last week. It's on Facebook. He made hand puppets and added some video effects to our conversation. It was incredibly hilarious. So check that out on the podcast and Facebook page. And now let's get to Andrew Eldridge. Andrew and I met at some point in the past, most likely at the National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy. Andrew's been active at those conferences as a performer, and you'll hear more about his background through this week's show. Andrew's been teaching at the University of Texas at Arlington for a while. He's been involved as a teacher, a concertizing percussionist in many large ensembles and chamber groups, along with being a frequent solo performer, particularly of commissioning for new works for percussion. It was an active and extended conversation that goes into many different topics, and thus, we'll be splitting this up into two episodes. So this week in part one, we'll cover Andrew's job at UTA, his performance career, growing up in Germany and Texas, his undergrad and master's degree years, his years as a band director, his steel band experiences, and the challenges that exist for the percussion specialist jobs in Texas. Next week in part two... We'll get to the rest. So let's get to it. We recorded this portion of the interview over Zoom on September 28th, 2022, and it begins right now. So, Andrew, give me a sense of your percussion responsibilities and activities as they are at this point. So I'm the coordinator of percussion at the University of Texas at Arlington, uh, which takes up uh, the bulk of whatever I do. Um, teaching takes up quite a bit of time, uh, and I have to balance it out with the performing aspects as well. Now, as an applied professor, I'm expected to perform a lot more, so I do try to get out and perform as much as I can. Uh, my tenure process is weighed very heavily on um, national performance. So I, I'm, I'm trying to cross the state lines quite a bit and get out to some schools and do some performing as well. Gotcha. Um, I do play in a local group called the Lone Star Wind Orchestra. Um, so I'm a section percussionist. I've been there for, I think this is year 12 now. Uh, and so um, uh, 
they made the jump to semi-professional uh, or regional um, about 12 years ago. And they, they had an audition and I won the audition. I've been there for a long time and it's been a great, great place to play. I do try to do um, a, a lot of recording stuff. Uh, so I, I do a lot of commissioning uh, and, and performing. So uh, when I'm commissioning new repertoire, it's usually stuff that um, has not been done before. You know, I'm trying to combine electronics with uh, the traditional percussion stuff. So a lot of my commissions are involved with this workshop period where I'm working with a composer for about four weeks and we're trying to figure out what's possible with this combination of instruments. And that's pretty much it, you know, just between the, the recording um, and then the performing and teaching. It's, it keeps me pretty busy. Tell me about getting the job at UT Arlington, uh, the process for that, and then where you were before that. Right after my master's degree, um, we had a pretty significant life event happen in my family, um, and I wanted to be close to family. So uh, right after I finished at the University of Illinois, I moved back to Texas to be a band director. And I was a, a full-time band director for about six years, um, where I split my duties between teaching percussion and helping out with the wind sectionals. And around 2011, uh, Texas went through a budget shortfall for education, and so they were cutting a lot of budgets. Now, whenever you're hired as a band director in school districts in Texas, you're on a probationary contract for a minimum of three years. And I was in the, the very end of that third year, and when they went through the budget shortfall, um, the place I was teaching uh, did a blanket cut of all of the probationary contracts. It didn't matter what it was. And I was the most senior probationary contract person there. So they said that if anybody retired, I could get my job back. And um, I was waiting for a couple of weeks and I had already made plans to go back to school. And that was always a lifelong dream of mine. Uh, and so about May, um, they said, hey, this person just retired. You can have your job back. And I said, well, actually, you know, I'm going to go ahead and follow my passion here. And I went to TCU, Texas Christian University for my doctorate, studied with um, Brian West and Richard Gibson. Right as soon as I started there, I had about one semester where I didn't really teach anywhere other than some private lessons. And I was hired as adjunct at the end of the fall semester at Texas Wesleyan University, which is kind of where I got my foot in the door for teaching at the university level. I was teaching a little bit through TCU, um, whether it's from the percussion stuff. Um, Brian West took a sabbatical for a semester, and, and so I was a sabbatical replacement for that fall. And then... Um, uh, I also have a theory cognate, so I taught a lot of theory classes when I was at Texas Christian University. Uh, but at Texas Wesleyan, I got a chance to teach a lot of private lessons and the percussion methods course, had a couple of percussion ensembles there and did some performing as well. And I think the four or five years that I was there is really what helped me to get the job at UTA. When I was at TCU, it was uh, it just happened to be that my wife and I, we had a, a house in Arlington, uh, which is really close to, to UTA. Uh, the UTA job came open, and it was, I don't know if you know uh, Jim Yakis, who's at Vander, Vander Cook or Vander, Vander, yeah. Vander Cook. Yeah, thank you. Um, so he was my predecessor at UTA. He was the senior lecturer of percussion, teaching drumline lessons, ensembles, that kind of thing. And so when he got the job at Vander Cook, I applied for, for the UTA position and won that. And so about three years of that, um, uh, the person I was working with, Dr. Michael Varner, uh, was, um, he decided to retire. And um, UTA, and in fact, the UT system was going through a hiring freeze at that point again. And so they kept me at senior lecturer, but they gave me all the duties to coordinate the percussion stuff. And I did that for about a year and a half. And then they opened up the tenure track search. March of 2019 
is when they open up the tenure track search and uh, won that position again. So I've been tenure track since 2019 and it's been great. So how long were you there prior to getting the tenure track position? Three or four years. It gets kind of murky um, after about year five. Uh, <laughs> all I know is um, what I can remember is that I've finished the third year review. I'm in year four of the tenure track. So I think this is year seven or eight um, uh, since then. <clears throat> I'm kind of murky on it because um, we've got a lot of, um, of family struggles with our, our daughter. Uh, she's got um, this medical condition that takes a lot of care. Uh, and so uh, there's a lot of that that goes into it that I can I have to step out and go take care of her and then come back and do the, the teaching. So it's been about seven, eight years or so. So I guess if we started in 2015 is when I started at UTA and years starting year eight. When you get the position and the, the tenure track position, was there any opportunity for you to count your previous years or did they or you want to start over? That's a great point. Um, so um, I had asked about it, possibly counting uh, from the senior lecturer side, but a UT system uh, rejected it because it wasn't as a tenure track before. Typically, if you had a prior tenure track position, you're coming from a new institution, they would count some of those years possibly uh, towards the, the tenure service. But since I was uh, being bumped up from senior lecturer into tenure track, they decided not to do that. Because of the of the change of position that you got um, with getting the tenure track position, had your performances already been uh, like on a regular basis, or were you did you end up just amping things up once you knew that that was going to be kind of the way they wanted you to get promoted later? Um, there's multi layers to that that question. So <laughs> I've been taught from an early uh, uh, time in my career to to kind of pre-plan the job that you want and start going out uh, after those activities to get the job, right? So I didn't want to start doing activities as soon as I got the job because I wouldn't be necessarily qualified to get the job. Uh, and so I was already starting to commission a lot of composers and do some performances um, uh, before that. Uh, that kind of helped me to get the job in the end. I think a combination of my public school experience uh, as a high school director kind of also helped that because I wasn't necessarily just the, the performance person. I was also someone that could relate to the music education side in our institution. So once I got the job, um, it was stressed very heavily that they wanted to see a upward trajectory of uh, performing, right? So they want you to, uh, to keep very close tabs on, all right, this year you're going to do X amount of performances and then the next year you're going to do x plus two performances and then and the next year will be x plus you know two plus four or so that way they're seeing this kind of momentum uh, uh when you get the actual tenure position or would they maybe say these performances but if that includes like PASIC or ncpp or some some other kind of national conference or like you know another instrument conference like would that would they count that yes absolutely um so um Pretty much the, the way that they make the, the distinction is that there's regional, um, there's local, uh, state, regional, and then national. Uh, and so regional is going to be maybe the next closest kind of couple states. Um, so from Texas be Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, um, uh, New Mexico. Um, but uh, Texas is kind of large, and so they have um, – uh, um, 
this this inclination to kind of count some of those states as national performances, just as long as you cross the state lines uh, and then you do some more performing. However, the national conferences, if you're selected to some of those, those obviously weigh a little bit more. Um, if you know anything about the the weight of certain things and the rubric that they go through and everything. So uh, definitely getting selected to play at a national conference is going to be better than just going to another university and, and playing recital. But you do try to pad some of the other stuff with those university performances as well. I think of it sometimes in terms of the, like my wife is a university professor, but her field's communication and there's like five journals that are like the journals for her yep. field. And so it's like, you, if you get something in one of those, that's kind of like the big thing. So it's somewhat, I somewhat related to that as well as kind of the performance thing. So tell me about, um, about your position at, at University of Missouri, correct? Yeah. And so yeah. what do you do there? I am the, uh, I teaching professor of music and I am the assistant director of athletic bands Okay. And then my my courses are in um, music theory, music history, uh, music op- entrepreneurship, composition, and um, some percussion here and there, and uh, a couple other things. Is I've kind of have a wide array of things. So, yeah, I've been there before too. You kind of fill um, whatever you can with the schedule, and just to, just to make ends meet and, and do yeah. what you can. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, that's kind of what, you know, like when you were talking about the theory cognate, it's I'm always like happy to hear that people do that because particularly if you're and I you, I want to hear a little bit more about the the school and the kind of the size of the school and the faculty, because it, that's something, you know, at smaller schools that this could have been like, I guess, Texas Wesleyan, where like there's just a few full time people and they are expected to do their field and something else <laughs> second year theory there you go so uh, i believe very strongly that whatever team that you're a part of you try to do whatever's needed to help the team thrive yeah uh, so i try not to be such a solopreneur um i don't want to just stick to my thing because i want to make sure that people around me are are supported as well um i've certainly been in institutions before where um have you heard the phrase tail wag the dog before uh, i have but i'm curious what what you mean in this case that um, while it's it's maybe um, not the the primary focus of a certain uh, ensemble like a band or so that you maybe have one section that's just really successful and as long as that section stays successful then everybody's fine. Right. Um, uh, so for me, I want to make sure that the entire department of music is, is really successful. So I'll help out as much as I can wherever I, wherever I am. So in your th- and that help could be um, you know community outreach that could be talking to uh maybe admin for various things i mean or committee work right oh absolutely so uh part of my deal with lone star wind orchestra when i first joined them is they asked some of the musicians to be parts of subcommittees and uh, my doctorate um my dissertation focused on uh, fund development um so i did a little bit of fundraising and so that's one way that i helped out with that organization now, I have talked about that a little bit through our department here at UTA as well, is that I'm just involved uh, a little bit with the scholarship committee. So I'm, I'm chairing the scholarship committee this year, uh, and I, I help out with maybe talking to certain people about certain um, high-impact donations that they might be able to do for our organization. So tell me a little bit more about the department, kind of also the, the facilities that you're working with at UTA. So our facilities are 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 not necessarily the highest um, uh, 
in in terms of uh, repair. Um, they've uh, well, we make it work, right? So sure. uh, there's um, there was a, a pretty popular director around DFW in Dallas Fort Worth um, named Amanda Drinkwater. She used to teach at um, Marcus High School, so you probably have heard of Marcus High School, right? Yep. Um, and so their marching band. Um, if you ever looked at some of their drill um, and you really paid attention, you would see that there um, there was this unique spot in the drill where they never marched, and so. Um, um, she would in a clinic one time, she called that the pit of doom, uh, because there's this point in their practice field where the field kind of like dipped down, they were on a concrete field and there was a light at the bottom of that. And so they told their drill rider, just don't write anything around the area. <laughs> and so, uh, whenever they, I saw their, their ensemble march, I would always look for that pit of doom. It's like, yep, I can tell where that is. So every, every place that you teach kind of has that pit of doom, right? And you just learn to kind of work with what you've got and, and just make things as successful as you can. So while our, our, our facilities might be not as nice as some of our, our sister um, universities around us, then we still make things work and we, we try to make sure that we instill the, the qualities of working hard with what you've got and doing what you can um, uh, so that you can always just strive to be a better musician. So um, we do have a significant portion of the building dedicated to percussion. So we're on the second floor um, of our building. It's a three, four floor building. And we have one large percussion room where we do the bulk of our um, uh, percussion ensemble rehearsals. And then we have, uh, let's see, we have four, five practice rooms for percussion. Um, and so two are our keyboard rooms. We have one that's kind of a multi-use room between like maybe vibes or xylophone or multis. Then we have two drum set rooms as well because we also have a jazz studies component and UTA, which is pretty healthy. Um, and they have, I think, about eight to 10 jazz drum set majors. Mm-hmm. And so that, those two rooms are always in use. And of course, we do have offices for um, for me and uh uh, Chris Nadeau, who teaches with me, and then also Dr. Joe Moore uh, joins us this year. And so he's got a, a little office as well. How big is the school, the whole the whole university? The whole university, um, so we've grown quite a bit in the last couple of years. When I was first hired in 2015, we had about 36,000 um, total enrollment. And uh, lately, the figures I've been hearing are close to 55, 56,000. Whoa! Uh, so now we do have a um, uh, an online component of people that are taking, which I think is probably about ten or twelve, maybe fifteen thousand of that. Um, but on campus, uh, you know, between thirty six, maybe forty thousand. Uh, but of course, we're a very large commuter school too, because of where we're situated in the university, or excuse me, in the metroplex. And so we're right in the in between Dallas, Fort Worth, or Dallas and Fort Worth, and uh, a lot of people drive from all over just to attend our school. We didn't really have a whole lot of dorms when I was first hired. And in fact, that was probably the chief complaint that they heard from a lot of students is that they didn't have the college atmosphere or the college experience where they were on campus and got to see games and whatnot. So in the last seven years, eight years, they've been building a lot of uh, apartment style dorms um, in the land that's kind of outside the university. And they've been really trying to push people to, to do that as well. Some universities you might work at, they have the, a requirement for students to live on campus for the first year or two, uh, and we have no requirement like that. A lot of our students at UTA are, are maybe non-traditional students that have waited a couple of years to come to school, or they come from families that, that can't necessarily afford to, to go to school. So we have a lot of students that are working one or two outside jobs, maybe even full-time jobs just to go to school, 
which I think is great because they they come in with a great strong work ethic and um, and they they want to make sure that they're there for the right reason. What's the getting to the um, to the wind symphony? What's the typical? What's the usual performance schedule and rehearsal schedule? And how many performances are you all putting on a year? Are you talking about Lone Star Wind Orchestra? Yes. Okay. They're growing quite a bit. And so that we typically do three to four scheduled concerts a year. So two in the fall, two in the spring. Uh, they also have a youth wins program and which does about the same number, three or four. I think I just saw that they developed a, a Lone Star Youth Choir, a chorale. And so mm-hmm. I think that's starting new this year. We've also had a percussion ensemble component in years past uh, where we did one big percussion ensemble concert for about an hour and a half or so. Uh, in the spring. And so um, we we had some opportunities to, to play not just the band repertoire, but also learn some percussion stuff. And um, and then every once in a while we get some trips. Um, so we might go to a state convention or um, there's a convention called WASPI um, that uh, I know that sometimes they've, they've gone to play. Right now they're talking about going to Madrid um, in the next summer or the summer after that uh, to do some performances as well. Um, so... We do, um, you know, once we get to the end of it, it's probably about five or six concerts between the regular schedule and whatever pops up throughout the year. Um, and then every once in a while, um, uh, I get called to do a, a gig that is probably my my most favorite gig of all. Um, but it, we call it the Flying Drummers Boys, but you'll probably see a bunch of it posted right when we get to it. But um, there's about 15 of us um, that do the this um, the Gift of Christmas concert, which is uh, associated with Prestonwood Baptist Church uh, in Plano. And for all of the snare drummers, um, they strap us to these these um, harnesses and they fly us up about 75 feet in the air. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's um, you're playing um, the little drummer boy um, while you're being ba- basically ping ponged in the air with these motorized uh, harnesses. And it's, it's like this huge production. I mean, I can't tell you how many millions of dollars this group probably makes doing this, but um, uh, they bring in this this company that does the same stunt work for Tom Cruise on some of the Mission Impossible things. So, like mm-hmm. that that movie where you see him kind of float down on yeah. those wires and stuff. It's the same company as that. Wow! Um, so th- there's a lot of us from Lone Star that play in that that group as well. How how good are your paradiddles while you're being fl- flown around an arena? For the paycheck that they're giving us, the best. <laughs> That's what I want to hear right there. <laughs> they tell us there's really only um, two rules, right? Is uh, once you get up there, stay smiling. And two, don't drop a stick. Right. <laughs> so, um, uh, and it's great to me. The My favorite part is seeing all of the little kids as they're sitting there in the audience. And we kind of enter from uh, on the sides of the, the, the room. We come in from the back. And so they don't really see us at all until right as we're coming down the aisle. And they see us getting strapped in. Their eyes just get so huge. Uh, and then we just start floating up and their jaws drop. And then we come down and we're literally rock stars. I mean, we're going out with like high fives and it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Are you a little, when you come down, are you like just trying to get your bearings almost too? Like I'm back on ground. This is this is good. You know, this is my, um, uh, I just finished year two doing it. And so yeah, yeah. it's a couple of years off with the pandemic and they, they just hired us all back for year three, which is um, it'll come back in a couple of weeks. Um, but 
the first performance that you do, you're trying to figure out where the floor is um, as you're as you're coming down, right? Uh, yeah. And so once you get used to that, once you get used to where the floor is and where it happens in the music, uh-huh. you kind of start to to learn the process and you know how to when to brace and how to brace and how to, to catch yourself. And so the first time you might uh, have a little bit of stumble, but every snare drummer is assigned uh, one person that is their handler, basically, and uh, that they want to make sure that the person is safe. Uh, as that they have both of those those cables are securely strapped in and that they're also um, strapped out of it, right? So they're unstrapped and that they can walk off and be able to do it. <laughs> That's awesome. I have to share a video or a photo with you at some point because, yeah. I mean, they, they have this whole thing where the, there's LED panels strapped to you. Oh, all right, yeah. And um, and it, it just it looks really incredible. Are they Are they flashing images on you? Is that why? It's tied to, it's not images, it's, um, there's like a light show that goes on. And so, um, and it goes through different cycles of it, depending on where they are in the music for the little drummer boy. Um, but there's, you know, there's traveling lights that go side to side and up and down and they can do big bright flashes and um, it's, it's pretty neat. Now, related to your work with commissions, because you said you, you are trying to get this, these works part of either published or you're 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 doing a lot of new stuff so you're incorporating other elements like electroacoustic stuff um are you uh do you make stipulations with these in terms of okay i i want to take this on the road so there has to be uh, something that's portable enough for me to so, so it's not a miserable experience for me to try to set these things up every time i do recitals not really uh and so um uh, I've had a couple of very influential teachers in my life that that basically talked to me about how they uh, commission certain people. And so for me, I don't want to put any stipulations on a composer that's going to inhibit their creative flow. I want them to write a piece that it, they, when they present it, it's going to be the best piece that they could have written for me, regardless of the amount of time it took or whatever that they felt like. So, for example, um, uh, David Maslanka, his last marimba solo was written for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and so when I commissioned him, he said, you know, it was going to take a year to two years to write this piece. But about four or five months after I commissioned him, he, he sent me this piece in the mail and said, here you go. It's done. It looked good. <laughs> and he, he just said that he, he felt the inspiration at one day and he wrote the entire piece. And, and that's what it is. Uh, and then there's some others that have taken two or three years to write. Let's say some of my newer commissions. Um, what I'm trying to do is tie in the electronic stuff, and I want them to not feel scared to write whatever they feel like they do. And that's part of the workshop process is that once they finish a piece, they usually send me a section and say, hey, is this possible to do? Is this? Can you figure out a way to do this? So, for instance, with Doug Bush and Mantra, um, the snare drum and, and Ableton live loop, he didn't know anything about live looping, or, or actually how to do this because he knew a little bit about logic but not enough to be um, to, to let Ableton run. Mm-hmm. So we spent several Zoom sessions where I showed him, all right, this is how you loop things and this is how you keep this from sounding as this other section is going and, and this is how you can keep this audio playing while this other one is still going. And We workshopped that one for about three or four weeks over the winter um, in 2019 to 2020. Once I got it working, it, it, it's been great. He also sells the piece, though, as uh, just a backing track. So you can technically just have it going and not have any of the risk involved with having to press a button or, or looping something, which I think is smart. But for me, you know, I want people to see 
that I'm actually doing um, the electronic stuff as an instrument. It's not a, um, a separate device from what I'm doing, but it's, it's just another percussion instrument for me to learn and master. I have been involved in some commissions before where um, uh, they almost wanted the electronic stuff to be, to be mimed, you know, almost to, to take the risk factor out of it, which I, which I understand that there's a lot of challenges with having to, to master that domain as well. But I, I do want people to know that when they see me press a button, they, they hear that sound. That was me doing it. And I, it wasn't some other thing that was just playing it. Great. Well, let's, let's, uh, Andrew, let's back up. Where did you grow up? Um, so I'm adopted. Um, so actually, I grew up in Germany. Um, and, and back then it was West Germany. So um, before the Berlin Wall, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the Berlin Wall fell down um, in 89. And uh, we got orders to, to move back to the United States and uh, lived here ever since. So I've jumped around quite a bit. Um, and I started percussion in Lawton, Oklahoma. If you remember, um, the PAS headquarters was yeah. in Lawton before it moved to Indianapolis. And so I remember uh, our band director at the time came in with this huge packet of percussion stuff, uh, just flyers. I still have it somewhere, but he just handed it to me and this other percussionist said, hey, this is for you. Go read it. And um, it, it was really neat that at the time. They had uh, like Dennis DeLucia and Fred Sanford exercises in there. Mm-hmm. And they came in different colored papers. And it was just, you know, as a young percussionist, I just loved it. So I poured over that. Well, fast forward. Um, so I was adopted in about 96. And, um, and so I moved in with a family uh, near Texarkana, Texas. So Northeast Texas. Graduated high school there. And I had been taking private lessons with Brian West when I was in high school. Mm. So I used to drive out to Commerce, Texas, where he was teaching uh, Texas A&M University of Commerce yep. um, every Wednesday. And it was about an hour and a half drive there. I would take my lesson and then we'd drive an hour and a half way back. Um, and so it was a, a pretty busy night, but I learned a lot from there. And yeah. I remember I was sitting down uh, at dinner with my 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 dad and he said, you know, where are you going to go to college? I said, well, I'm not sure yet. And he says, well, you're going to go to Texas A&M University of Commerce because that man has invested so much time in you. <laughs> and, um, and honestly, it, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Um, I learned a lot from Brian West when I was there. Um, and so Paul Rennick was also teaching adjunct uh, at a Commerce at the time. So I had two years of lessons with him. And because I knew those two individuals, it opened up a lot of um, avenues for me to be able to participate in drum corps or for later on down the road to study with Brian again at Texas Christian University. So, yeah, I grew up in Texas. I, well, I grew up in Germany and Texas. And then um, once I started college, uh, it was it was just basically game over. Um, my <laughs> life is Britain. <laughs> How long were you in Germany? Nine years. Oh, all right. That yeah. I was gonna say that's a that's long enough to remember <laughs> being in Germany. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So all my childhood, pretty much um, uh, before going into middle school, it was uh, in Germany. Were you at a um, like an American school, or were you were you are you like extremely fluent in German? What's the kind of the what was your first schooling at the time uh, yeah it was an american school but they split it german half german half american so um you took two language classes uh, mm. american and german and and they tried to, to get immerse you in the german culture as much as possible so we did a lot of activities that maybe a german student might do uh, i was having this conversation with my wife the other day that um one thing that i i kind of miss here i mean in the united states we have field days a lot of elementaries might have field days for their 
topics, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we had those in Germany too, but we, um, we also had a, like um, a 5K hike. Uh, I remember we used to, to go hiking as an elementary school through the forest uh, for 5Ks, and they would, uh, they would have all these stations set up for doing these games, and, and you would bring your own lunch with you. And it was, uh, it was just a unique experience for me. Uh, as, so, um, and I didn't know how much I would really enjoy that until you look back on your life and say, hey, you know what? That was actually a pretty formative um, experience that I had. Yeah. Was it jarring to make the trip back to, you know, to, to settle full time in the U S Oh yes. Um, uh, I was in love with Germany <laughs> when I was there. I loved the people that were there and the, the culture that was there. The most jarring thing for me was I wasn't used to seeing commercials on television. <laughs> uh, and so, um, they used to run the full show of whatever it was. I remember Knight Rider, you know, and, uh, and yeah. on the television show. Um, but they would run it for like 22 minutes and then you'd have a little eight minute newscast of whatever was going on. Uh, and so that's what I was used to seeing. And when we came to the United States, I remember seeing commercials for Juicy Fruit. And, and then I wouldn't realize it, but I'd go to school singing these commercials and the kids would be like, why are you singing that commercial? Like I'd never heard it before. And it's catchy. Uh, so, you know, I, I would sing these these commercials quite a bit um, whenever I was just listening to them. I was also um, not really used to the the difference in the culture, uh, and so um, obviously every country has its own culture and the way that people are raised, and and in little kids too. Uh, so when I was moved to the United States, that I wasn't used to um, how antagonistic some people were, uh, and so um, I was always taught, you know, you know, just stay in the background, be polite, ask questions, and. Uh, and so it, it was probably my first experience with bullies whenever I moved over to the United States, hmm. but it was, it was a good experience. Nonetheless, I had to learn pretty quickly, <laughs> uh, how to handle those social situations. What about, I I'm, I'm surprised that I didn't hear you say the, the heat was jarring. Yeah. Um, I was young enough to not really understand that the, the, the heat was hot. Um, and so, um, I, I've always felt like I've been pretty comfortable regardless of whatever the temperature is. If it's hot, if it's muggy, I just you know, get out and do it. Also, um, I grew up in um, a generation where you pretty much didn't ever stay inside, right? You, right. you always were outside. And I just remember being outside from basically sunup to sundown and just kind of figuring out life on my own outside. And um, it was just a different time at, at that point. Yeah. So now I, you know, we do get a little bit of the the heat is, is definitely overbearing. <laughs> the older I get and the more I see how it impacts my daughter, definitely, I, I start to know how hot it is. Or if I see my students um, and they're kind of being bogged down by carrying that drum, I know that it can be tough. So, yeah. Yeah. Are you from the area? No, I'm from I'm from New York. Um, so I've I've not lived in that level of jarring heat, but, you know. I just know that it's a thing. I was thinking of it actually because of Arlington. Um, I think there, I've, I don't know if this is still true, but I think there weren't there rules about the Texas Rangers, not like they can't have a, a day game basically until like late September or they never have them because it's just too hot to, to even try to have one in the daytime. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really get to experience that until I started as a band director. Right. <laughs> so we have some of the same directions for whenever you're teaching a group. 
So I can remember some band rehearsals, we'd, we'd have to take a, a five minute break every 15 minutes, you know, because of how hot it was. And, or, or you had to make sure that people drank this much water every single hour because of how hot it was. If a uh, heat index went above a certain amount, you couldn't have a rehearsal, you know, if it went above, you know, 120 for the index, then of course it's too hot because your shoes are basically melting on the pavement. And, yeah. um, and so there's a lot of people, um, uh, it's pretty popular now to see if it's hot enough to cook an egg, <laughs> uh, or hot enough to cook cookies on your car dash. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, I've seen those quite a bit. I, the latest craze was actually people tape these crayons, um, to the top of poster board mm -hmm. and they just set it out in the sunlight and they time how long it takes for them to melt. And so, um, it might be like a 10 minute melter on this day and it might be a 20 minute melter on another day. Wow. Um, yeah, so you definitely feel the heat a little bit more, um, right now. And like you said, with the Texas Rangers, they used to have a stadium that was open. Right? Yeah. And they just built a new stadium, uh, which is really nice. And so, um, everything's moving to enclosed stadiums and it, it, it's much cooler. It's, it's got, I think AC for most of it, and, which is completely a different experience. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, the sun can be brutal. Yeah. Turns out. Yeah. <laughs> when you were going through your musical experiences, what, what was the, you may have said this, but say it, what was the, what was your first percussion thing that you were doing? Uh, the first, when I first learned percussion. Yes. So that was in fourth grade. Um, when I was in Lawton, Oklahoma, that's where I learned percussion and learn on the practice pads and little bell kits and um, we had a little a band that was um uh, it always met at the elementary school so we only had four people in ours we had a trumpet player a flute player and um uh, two percussionists and um we just learned out of the beginning band books essential elements at that time and um and so when i moved to uh, the texarkana area new boston I, it, that was pretty much my first experience of being in a band uh, so that was the traditional middle school band, um, met once a day and we didn't really take lessons at that point. Um, but I was starting to get a lot more into drum set at that point. So I was taking a couple outside drum set lessons. Gotcha. What was your favorite when you're starting out? What was your favorite music to play on drum set? Uh, my birth family was, uh, they basically loved, um, garage bands, you know? And so I grew up listening to, um, uh, the traditional rock, um, uh, like Led Zeppelin, um, Leonard Skinnerd, um, that kind of thing. And so I was always going to be in my mind, a drum set player. And that's the kind of stuff that I always played. And when I went into starting taking lessons with the drum set teacher, that's when I started to learn a little bit more about jazz. And so he, um, he introduced me to take five with Joe Morello. <laughs> we started to learn some of that stuff. And I learned quite a bit out of that album just by listening to that, to that jazz member. Um, so I remember listening to a little bit to Herbie Hancock mm -hmm. uh, at that time, just getting exposed to it. And once I got to college, that's when my eyes opened up and to Latin jazz. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I became a, a Michelle Camilo um, fan. Uh, I mean, I just uh, digested as much as I could of that, that gentleman's discography. So good. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, so it went to from him to Chucho Valdez and. And I just really, really loved it. And because of that, um, we also had a, a, a little steel band at a Commerce that I loved playing in. And so I would usually play the drum set and play a whole lot of steel pans in it. And when I went to the University of Illinois for my master's is when I joined a, a small combo called iPan. 
Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's where we rented the the pans from the university and we'd go and play in the local bars. And, and it was probably the most fun I'd had playing in a small group and learning that, that style of music. Yeah. yeah, that's great. You have any steel drum experience? I do. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it was, it started when I was a doctoral student at UNC Greensboro. We got the, a steel pan set and Court McLaren at the time basically was like, just like looked at the grad students, like this is yours, figure it out. And so it was, it was great. Uh, it, I mean, it was like, it was, it was a little shocking, but it was good. And then when I first got to Mizzou, uh, I had, a, I, I taught here for a couple of years, um, just t- teaching percussion part-time. And my main job was I was the steel band director aside from doing other things. So that was a lot of fun to write and do so, a lot of, um, we, we played a lot of gigs really often. So, yeah, I I love any chances to do that is is always fun. So what's your what's your pan? What what do you typically play? Um, I love lead pan, um, mm-hmm. and so I also play a little bit of double seconds as well. Yeah. Um, so when I was at TCU, my grad assistant duties, I was the the steel drum director, and so uh, I would teach both the of uh, the steel drum one and steel drum two nice uh, classes and. I was trying to, to get them into more of uh, learning how to improvise on instruments, right? Yeah. Sometimes, um, uh, have you ever heard that joke, how do you get a drummer to play softer? I have, but I don't remember the punchline. Put music in front of them. Oh, there you go. Okay. And I was, I was finding out that um, some of the, the players, they, they could read music really well, um, but trying to get them to, to like open up their ears and just, you know, and, and kind of improv a little bit and have fun yeah. um, was... Uh, you have to teach that skill. And so I was starting to teach that quite a bit to them and, and, and really enjoyed doing that. Got to uh, to UTA and I was kind of interested. We don't have a steel drum group here. And that's been one of my main missions since I've been here is to try to find uh, steel drums that we can get here. Yeah. Part of it is we're limited in space, right? I've told you that we don't have um, very much space to store stuff. It, it's kind of a small building for the size of the apartment that we are. And, um, uh, I wish we had the space right now, but, um, maybe that's if we ever get a new building. I wonder if you think about the, about this too, that I, that some of the challenge with working on steel drums is, uh, is the comfort with dealing with the pitch arrangement. Cause it's just so it's, it's a different, it's, it's a different instrument. I mean, it, yeah, you know what pitches are what, but you are, you have to, it's not arranged the same way that so many other instruments are arranged yeah it's not as easy to jump from like lead pan to double seconds to guitars you know because there's a different layout for all of that um as opposed to the traditional keyboard percussion which you know what's going to be like every time but the size and the width might be a little bit different sure um but you know honestly that experience in learning a new pan and being able to teach those pans really helped me out once i started to do a little bit more with electronics um, using things like this instrument right here, um, which is the launch pad. Um, mm. and so this instrument right here can be split up into not just, you know, playing um, uh, different samples, but you can also play it like a keyboard using yeah. whatever the layout is. And so um, just being aware that there are different layouts for whatever instrument it is, and you're basically learning a combination of, of pressing things down is, is, is kind of key right there, right? Yeah. Some people, um, I met some students that have, uh, they, they go to a new pan and they get so overwhelmed with having to learn those new instruments that, the, that it's almost like they don't want to learn it because it, they see that mountain ahead of them, the, the learning that skill. 
but the more that you can show them the pattern, if they can think about it, um, then it's going to be a little bit easier. It might not be as easy to recall it in a quick enough time that you need to play it, but um, that, that just takes repetitions. Yeah. Yeah. I also think move the moving from, I think if you stay, if you started on a pan that was, uh, that was like bass or something that's multiple, I think it's easier to move to a lead versus the other direction, particularly just going lead to double second. And you're like, wait, I gotta, you're just, your hands are just like, where I leave this here. And yeah, you know, there's so many, so this past weekend I had um, uh, dinner with Dave Gerhardt. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Tom, yeah. And we were talking about steel drums again. And um, he was saying that there's um, a group of people that actually play left-hand leads. Um, and so uh, yeah. I think he mentioned um, Mark Ford is one of them. Uh, and then uh, there were a couple other people that he mentioned along with them. But basically the the pan is mirrored from where you would go. So on on lead for me, I think you know I go up to the right, and for a left hand lead, you go up to the left, and then mm-hmm. at the bottom, instead of having just one big C, there might be two C's right next to it, and the octave is on the right side instead of up above it. And um, so for me, just learning it off the left would just throw me for a loop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. Uh, tell me a little bit about the band experience when you're in high school. Is this, I guess, what what, what one would consider kind of full on Texas band when you, when you're there? Yeah. Um, so my adopted family, the uh, my dad is was the band director there, uh, and so um, he I, everything I learned about music uh, came from him and. Uh, he was such a, a big influence. He is a, such a big influence in my life. Um, and so there's two styles of marching band in Texas. One is the core style, which you might be used to through drum corps or the WGI. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other style is called military style, um, which is the the traditional, like you go down the field and you do what's called a counter march, mm-hmm. which is you turn the opposite direction. And then you're basically marching through each other. Oh, is that um, like Texas A&M style? Exactly. Like Texas yeah. A&M. Yep. And so there's a, um, a like the Southern, of, was it like the Southern cross or something like that, that they do? It's where they, the whole band like meshes through. Yeah. The, the more traditional version is that they start in, in four different corners and they march towards the center Yeah, and they just go through each other. And so there's a lot of turning to get through that. Uh, and so um, when you're first learning something like that, there's a lot of um, bent bells or, <laughs> right. uh, or, or just injuries. And so you're just trying to make it through with your life basically. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, in high school, that was the style that I learned was the military marching style. Uh, now when I went to college, that was my first exposure to the core style. And, um, and for, as a percussionist, that's where, you know, your bread and butter is, is learning how to play some of that more modern, um, language on the drums and, and learning different voicings of drums. So you've got tenor drums now, and you've got multi basses, not just one bass and, Um, you also have a front ensemble, which is uh, pretty incredible because you're utilizing not just drum skills, but now you got your keyboard skills and, oh, there's a timpani in, uh, in the front ensemble. And so now you're learning how to play that. So for me, the, the, the core style was where I really opened up my ears and learned about some of the stuff. Awesome. Um, so, but outside of that, yeah, we do have the traditional concert band in, in high school. Um, and so the concert bands in Texas are, are, are just as big as some of the, the marching bands, right? It's very competitive, and there's a lot of really great players. 
And I think part of that is because of the investment from like the football around here is that there's a lot of, of investment in the marching band. And so, which allows you to have a concert band. Uh, of course, um, Texas is very big on competitions, right? So um, all the, um, the bands compete against each other. And, um, and because of that, there's a very strong um, vertical alignment of a band. So there's middle schools that are tied very closely to the high schools. And, and there's a lot of the same terminology going through. So these students are hearing a lot of this information for eight years or so, seven right. or eight years, depending on when they start, rather than maybe just starting in high school or transitioning to a different instrument. Yeah. A lot of the students that come into college nowadays are, are people that maybe knew they wanted to do percussion for the last three or four years. And so they've been studying very heavily on the percussion stuff. Does the military style have its own competitions similar to DC, like the drum corps style? Yeah. So there, um, uh, there is a state marching competition here in Texas, um, which does allow um, the military bands to, to compete there. Traditionally, they don't do as well as the core style because there's not a whole lot of GE that's involved with right. some of the military marching. And mm -hmm. so in the last couple of years, I'm, in fact, I, I forgive me, I don't know when it started, but there has been a state marching competition now for military bands. Oh, great. That's hosted around the same time. Uh, but it, that's only a recent invention. I think it was uh, created, you know, maybe five years ago six years ago it could have been a lot longer than that but i recently started to see a little bit more social media about it great in your time you do, uh, what's that did you do marching band in high school yes i was asked this actually by some of the students in in marching mizzou not too long ago i did but it was the by far the weakest of the of the arts it was we were very much a concert band and choir uh, school so those and concert and jazz band so those were like the big the big ensembles marching band we did because we had football team that we had to play for but it was it was i barely remember those experiences to be honest <laughs> <laughs> which is weird because now i do marching band full-time have like done marching band basically my entire career so it comes back um, now, when you say you're the, the associate director of the athletic bands, are you doing um, like the, the volleyball band and basketball band and all that kind of stuff? So we have a when I when I first got here, we had a we have a director of athletic bands. She does the she runs the marching band and she uh, does the men's basketball band. And then um, I do the volleyball pep band and that's in the fall. So it's like I, I kind of get doubled up in the fall. And then our current, we have an assistant director of bands. Who's the kind of the next, the other band director with marching Mizzou and he does the women's basketball. So we, we split those duties because there's just a ton of different activities for those. So. Yeah. I couldn't even imagine. So we don't have a football team here, so we don't <clears> have a the traditional March band. We call it an exhibition band. So we rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And then about the end of September, we start doing about five straight weekends of, exhibitions at all the local band competitions yeah and then once we're done with that the beginning of november they pack it in they're done <laughs> wow there's no football games uh yeah. to, to go to which is it's kind of nice um i wish we did have a football team but that's for another story <laughs> yeah, right. you have a pretty big um uh a basketball band here uh, mm -hmm. and so, uh, we have a big basketball team and in fact um so uta is um uh, there's a lot of students uh with uh, disabilities that attend UTA because we have um, 
I don't know how many years they've been doing it, but they call it the Moving Mavs, which is a wheelchair basketball team. Mm. And they've won the NCAA tournament, I mean, so many years in a row. And not just the men's team, but the women's uh, wheelchair basketball team. And they're so incredibly good. Mm. Um, and we've got some people that play for that as well. We have a major in the, the music department who's, this is his second semester uh, that I've had him in a class. And he's uh, uh, one of the members of our wheelchair basketball team and he's and that that's the reason he's at mizzou was he came from california um to do wheelchair basketball and and he was telling me that some there's only like 12 programs that have competitive wheelchair basketball in the country it's it's very small um yeah. so i i'm, I'm i want to next time i see him i'll ask him about your your uh, school's team i'm sure i'm sure he's hyper aware of it because it's a small <laughs> community okay yeah. yeah, I don't know how, how big it is. All I know is we, about once a year we get a notification and say, hey, they just won the, the tournament, and so which is pretty exciting. <laughs> That's great. When you go to commerce, okay, so you, you had been taking from Brian already. So it's not so that part was, I would assume, an extension. It was different because you were in college, but it was you know kind of an extension of what you had already been doing. But what other aspects of your life or I mean, cause you're in college, like what's different about that experience than just going there as a high school student? Most of my life has been, um, okay. So we talked about the, the difference in cultures between Germany and moving to Texas. Um, yeah. uh, most of my experiences in percussion happened because I was open to learning new, new experiences. Yeah. Um, so for example, my lessons with Brian West, I was going to with, to study with him as a drum set player. And I remember very distinctly, we were in a lesson and he said, Andy, um, do you want to, to study music in college? I said, well, I think so. He goes, well, if you do, then you need to learn this instrument. And he pointed to the marimba. And so um, I was like, okay, so how do you play it? And so he sent me home assignments, um, you know, learn all 12 major scales by next week. And so I didn't know what was hard or what was easy at that point. And so I came back the next week and had all 12 major scales down. And then he said, all right, Let's learn some formats. And so we did that. And then by the end of that semester on playing the keyboard, I'd already learned two formalot solos and, and kind of learned my, enough to fake my way into getting into college. So getting into to college, a lot of my experiences and growth in percussion happened because of the same way. Is that, you know, someone would suggest that, hey, do you want to do this? I'd say, sure. I was just open to learning as much as I could about whatever it was. So I played in the front ensemble, played in the snare line, did uh, tenors uh, and marching band and got a lot of experiences in different sections came to steel band they said hey do you want to play the instrument i said sure you know put me in on that and percussion ensemble do you want to play on this piece like sure give me anything i can and consume a lot of, of this stuff and so uh, for me it was more about time on the instrument and just learning as much as i could than trying to prove myself um, and so I, I took a lot of um, great lessons with with Brian West. And then after my freshman year, I, I did two years with Paul Rennick. Uh, and then right at the end of my junior year, um, Brian West got the job at TCU. And so Brian Zader came in and I had two wonderful years with him as well and um, and had a very different approach to, to learning about music. And so I, I got a chance to, to get a wide variety of, of perspectives on playing the instruments. And I don't think at any point I was, um, uh, I felt like that I was there to just kind of prove myself. I was just trying to learn a lot of what there was. Um, I, I remember very distinctly too that 
Um, Brian West used to post a lot of the competitions that were out there on outside his office on this uh, cork board. <laughs> and so I, I would see some of the, the flyers that were out there say, hey, this is a PAS um, solo ensemble competition or solo competition. And I'd say, all right, so I'll try and open, uh, enter that. And so I would just learn a bunch of repertoire and submit the, the tape and, and ended up um, uh, just being able to advance to the um, one year. they So you know how PAS does a lot of solo competitions every year or they have one big competition every year mm -hmm. um so like one year um there was a the solo recitalist competition then this year i think it's the drum set um competition um right. so when i was in college they had a multiple percussion one um and so this was 2002 and um i submitted my tape for the semifinals and uh found out i made it to the finals and so they brought four of us up to to pas and we competed in the finals for that but I had no idea about some of this repertoire. All I knew is that there was this list of stuff. And so I just picked a couple and, and learned it as best as I could and, um, and really just got a, a lot out of the experience. At this point in life, um, uh, social media was a big thing. I was telling my students this past week, I remember when social media was invented. Right. <laughs> so yeah. uh, when I went to Illinois at the time, um, Facebook had just started. And so, um, this was 2003, right. And, mm -hmm. and at, back then it was only open to, um, 10 universities and you had to have a university email. So mm -hmm. no one under 18 could do it. No one over 22 or 23 could do it because it wasn't active. And, right. um, so a couple of years later, it's opened up to all these other things, but fast forward to at TCU doing my comps, uh, and studying for everything. I had to go through a, a social media fast. You know, I basically deleted all of the apps off my phone um, and my my tablet, and I didn't log in on my computer. And I just for six, eight weeks or so, all I did was just study, uh, and, and then I wasn't distracted with the social media stuff. Yeah, and I think that that's right about the time too where I learned that taking a break is a good thing. You know, taking a break from social media or reading certain things or or even doing certain things is just a really good recalibration for your body. What what kinds of things you kind of alluded to this, but I want to hear a little bit more about what was different musically, music approach, lit wise, anything when you do start taking with Brian Zader. It was just a different set of, of background, uh, like Brian Zader had a big Keiko Abe background, so um, when he came into to school um, or came to teach at a Commerce, I remember asking, how do you play traditional grip? And so he taught me how to play traditional grip, and, and I learned how to do that on marimba, and then also learned a little bit more about the Japanese repertoire that he, um, that he studied with Keiko Abe. Um, Brian West is, is a, a phenomenal uh, drummer and has incredible drum hands, um, and, but he's also one of the most musical people I know, too. Uh, and so uh, I learned a lot about just different approaches to me, uh, shaping musical lines from both of those individuals, too. Um, I remember I've had really good lessons with um, Brian Zader um, on um, uh, approach to performance, right? As, as, uh, he's a very big proponent of, and this is a Brian Zader quote, is that make a musical motion that matches the musical moment. Uh, and so um, I remember a lot of our lessons were, were very key on, all right, so what do you want to say physically here as you start to move to this other instrument, right? It's almost like a dancer behind the instrument. Uh, so it, I just got a lot of different perspectives from both of them, and both of them were really key to my development as a percussionist. Do, when you finish, you're, you're getting an ed degree, I assume, right? For undergrad? 
Yes. So my undergrad was in music education. Um, and so that was um, uh, Brian West had encouraged me to do music education as something that we might be able to, to fall back on if, if maybe the performance thing didn't quite work out. Regardless of the degree, um, he teaches everyone to be the best performer they can be. Uh, and so I, I got music education um, at a and Commerce, and then all my other degrees were percussion performance. Now, do you, is this when you uh, band direct for a while? Yeah. So uh, right after my undergrad, I went to get my master's. Um, and, um, and so uh, uh, my brother uh, passed away about halfway through my master's degree. And, and that's where I you know, decided that I wanted to move close to family. And just be uh, just focus on that rather than go straight through with my doctorate. So I moved to Texas and I was a band director for six full years. Do you finish the master's at Illinois? Yes. Um, so he um, he was in a car accident around August of 2004. Uh, and so we had just started marching band camp at, at Illinois. And so it was like that day that we started that night. I got the call from from my mom and finished out the, the rest of the year. And, and I ended up graduating in August rather than in May. Um, uh, but I was already working by then, so I didn't do the graduation ceremony. But again, you know, I just wanted to be close to family and, and just kind of be able to see their faces rather than um, be able to just call them. Yeah. I'm going to check in with that again, but I want to get back to you going to Illinois. What's okay. Aside from the fact that you're a master's student, what's similar or different between those programs? So um, I went to Illinois specifically to study with Bill Mersh um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and learn his process of um, generating new marimba repertoire, but mm-hmm. also his approach to learning it. Because at the time, uh, he was such a, a masterful interpreter of, of avant-garde music, and, and he was responsible for generating some of the, the most influential pieces in our repertoire. The biggest thing that I learned when I went to school there, though, wasn't necessarily with the percussion stuff, but it was also how to um, have a conversation with someone that was not from Texas, if that makes any sense. <laughs> um, so, um, I, I learned um, very quickly that, that a lot of the music programs in Texas are, are you know, we're in this bubble uh, of there's a lot of talent here yeah. and people can sometimes not be aware of what happens outside of the state unless they get to experience that. And so because of that, the, the two years that I spent there was invaluable for just being a, a better human being and being able to communicate. Uh, I remember uh, there was one wind symphony rehearsal um, uh, that we just finished. And after the rehearsal, there was a bunch of people kind of standing in the front room when I was with them. And um, we're just getting to know each other and people are asking, so where are you from? And, and um, uh, so George Bush was president at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember uh, um, uh, they were asking me where I, uh, I came from. I said, well, I'm from Texas. And all of a sudden uh, they launched into, well, how do you explain Bush voting for this? And how do you explain Bush doing this? And how do you do this? And I just, I remember backpedaling. I was like, well, uh, I don't know. Because I, um, I, I didn't necessarily vote for him at the time. I, I, I learned a lot on how to, to be the middle road on, on some of this. Because some people are, are militant in the liberal sense and some people are militant in a conservative sense. And mm-hmm. um, I just got a good experience on, on how to handle that. I could, I could see how that would be a, <laughs> a big challenge. <laughs> um, well, and also probably 
Well, you're in Champaign-Urbana. You're not. You're not in Chicago. I was going to say speed of talking might be a little different too. Thankfully, Illinois uh, isn't just, um, especially the University of Illinois, isn't just people from Illinois. It's right. such a big school, and the music program is is so well known that people are drawn from all over the the, the nation. And so, yeah. I got a good experience of meeting people from all around the globe, and not just from Illinois. Um, you know, people from Illinois, they, they tend to also say they're all from Chicago. <laughs> um, they're not just from uh, mid-Illinois uh, or they're not just right. from South Illinois. Like um, people would say, oh, well, I'm from Chicago. I say, well, okay, so how close did you live from Chicago? Well, I lived about two and a half hours away. <laughs> right. Um, and so this, to me, that's a huge city. Um, yeah, yeah. And, but of course, too, the big thing for me was um, I came from AM Commerce where the, the town is about 10,000 uh, at that point. Uh, excuse me, the town was about 6,000. The university was about 10,000. Yeah. Uh, and so on the breaks, it was a ghost town. Um, and then you move up to Illinois and uh, and people would say, oh, Urbana-Champaign is is so small. And it's like, well, how big is it? It's like almost 175,000 people live here. It's like, man, that's a metroplex to me. That's <laughs> that's massive. Yeah. So the the juxtaposition of... of size and relative uh of the the amount of stuff that you can do in certain cities i guess is 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 influential in where you grew up did you have an assistantship for masters yes i was the 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 drumline ta so what was the Uh, schedule that you were dealing with for that there it was we had rehearsals uh, i think three days a week we had drumline rehearsal maybe once a week and then the Saturday Orama. Uh, so the right. Orama is like maybe 5 a.m. to uh, 7 or 8 p.m. And um, it was always um, a long day for me. Um, but because there was so much involved with the, the fall, they didn't have any responsibilities for me to do in the spring. Um, but it was a year-long TA. They just did the bulk of the duties in the football. I also had to to write all of the music for the 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 March Man shows, and that was my first experience with a marching band that did a a, a new show about every week or every yeah. two weeks. Yep. And so, in in Texas, most of the high schools and most of the universities here might do one show for the whole season. Right. They just work to 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 make it really really good, and so I had to learn how to do a lot of templates and how to to key in things pretty quickly, and I had to learn how to use finale really well and. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was in that regards i learned a lot of skills very quickly <laughs> learned the value of having duplicate copies of your files on a computer because i had worked through a computer crash um that first fall i was there and and had to get a new computer and lost all of my stuff and had to rewrite shows and... yikes yeah <laughs> not fun because of because of what you said was the kind of the circumstances that that you find yourself in after in the summer of year two there, I'm curious what your mindset is in terms of, are you like I have to I just have to finish so I can I can get back like, it, you know, it, and it, are you able to take in as much as you as you were previous to, you know, the news of your brother? My second year definitely was was different than the first year. Because of that, I don't think I got as much out of the studio as I probably could have. Um, and, and so my goal was just to, to finish the year and, uh, and just kind of stick to myself and do what I could to, to, to pull together a degree in some way. Um, I, I definitely grew up a lot that second year, uh, for sure. 
um, matured a lot. And, um, and so uh, once I finished the year um, is like the next day, um, I just went, went back down to Texas. And Did you have a, a job lined up when you, like when you're finishing up? Yeah, I went straight into band directing. That August is when I started uh, band camp with the, so the band camp start here start a couple weeks early before the school year starts. And um, I had already had a full-time teaching position lined up and, and I moved down just to do that. What was it like to be back in Texas after those two years? So I had to recalibrate for sure. Uh, Cause I just spent two years devoting myself to being a percussion performer um, and learning a certain style of, of performance. And just like any kind of um, language accents that you might have, there's different styles of playing depending on where you are. Uh, and so um, I had to pick up on what the high schools were doing again. And I, I was surprised at how much you kind of forget after two years of being in a, um, uh, being away from a place. And so moved back, had to relearn a bunch of stuff on what, what expectations might be for a band program and, and how to teach some things. And keep in mind, too, that this is also my first year as an educator. Um, have you ever been a, a band director? or Not in the high school level, no. There's a saying that when you're in high school, you're kind of learning the the perfect world. Um, or excuse me, when you're in college, you're learning the perfect world about what you should do when you do certain things. And then when you get out into the real world, you learn the pragmatic way of doing it. It's like, okay, now this is what you really need to do. And so you kind of spend the first three to five years of your career relearning how to do some of this stuff um, and finding out what works for not just for you, but also for your students because every situation is going to be unique too. So um, as I was a first year band director, I had to basically learn how to, to teach again. It was different than teaching college. And, um, and so there was a lot of late nights where I was just trying to figure out what was going to be the next thing for that group of students. Um, I was very fortunate, though, that I've I've been in um, mostly um, uh, a groups of staffs that were very supportive. Uh, so there was a lot of people that were willing to let me make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. And I'm very grateful for that experience, too, rather than just being told what to do. So I had a, a good opportunity to see if something was going to work, I could try it. And if something didn't work, I might be able to tweak it just a tiny bit or just scrap it all together. So... Um, yeah, the first couple of years of teaching um, was kind of tough, but it was uh, worth its weight in gold. Gotcha. So right out of your, your doctorate, did you go straight into to teaching college? I did, yeah. Yeah, I was, was fortunate to land a, a part-time position right out, so I could kind of – but was it was – what's that? Where was that? That was at Concord University in West Virginia. And it was very much a, I just finished at UNC Greensboro and we had every piece of equipment you can imagine. And then I get to Concord and we have a half decent four and a third and, you know, everything is in kind of a weird condition and, and it's like, all right, make do, <laughs> you know, yep, go for it. So, so. um, so we have four of the, the Yamaha Abe style mar marimbas hmm. at UTA. Awesome. And uh, and then we also have my marimba, my personal marimba here in the office, and, and we've got a couple others. And so the students don't really know how lucky they have it to be able to play on these gorgeous instruments that don't rattle that much and that are still relatively <laughs> flat and they can still roll. Right. And um, I, I told them, I think, two weeks ago in our studio class that I can remember playing percussion ensemble concerts at AM Commerce using an M250, mm -hmm. the Musser M250s. 
building your own personal heights uh, blocks so that yep. you can lift the marimba up and then resting your knee on those gold resonators just so they won't rattle and, you know, so they don't buzz and um, you want it to be as quiet as possible for the recording. And um, you can't just like play on it without pushing something against it. You just got to make sure it works. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. The couple of years, the, you know, when you got to kind of get restarted into the band world, what kind of, if there's some specific things that you were, that were the kind of the pragmatic version of having to do band, what, what were those lessons? Um, uh, the biggest lesson was that I'm, I'm a musician. I'm not just a percussionist. I wanted to make sure that I was giving musical comments to to, to people. And so I, I, I made sure that we, um, well, most of the programs I've been into, we were also uh, team teaching all of the classes. It wasn't just one person staying in the room. Mm-hmm. It's that all the directors were, were there and helping out with whatever they could do to fix. Mm-hmm. So I always had a, a score with me and I learned very early on that there were some, some composers that were a lot more respected because of the way that they scored things or their musical thoughts. And, and so uh, I was able to, to learn a lot of that band repertoire in uh, a very early age and learn some of the highest band level um, band repertoire. Um, and so I, I think because of that is what helped me to get into Lone Star Wind Orchestra, where we're also playing a lot of this high level literature and, and commissioning and generating new repertoire. And, um, and just being exposed to it quite a bit was just invaluable. How, how are you handling the football Friday competition, all those parts of the band experience? So the Friday night football games wasn't necessarily the, the, the worst part. I think the worst part was getting home kind of late from those games uh, and then having to turn around on four hours of sleep and then be up early at the band hall on Saturdays for the competition. And so the Saturdays were kind of the ones that were more brutal than the football games because we'd spend Saturday, you know, 6 a.m. and then not get home till 1 a.m. Sunday morning. And after having only had four hours of sleep the night before, those were tough, tough days. Uh, and so those are also the days that you learn how to speak with students about getting them energized and, and just sticking with it and, 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 and just coming together to play great music. As far as the other schedule, um, I, I don't know if you've seen, uh, but Texas is kind of going through a reckoning right now with um, uh, percussion directors, especially leaving the profession. Yes. And, um, and that's been going on for like four or five years. Like pre-pandemic, this was happening. Correct. Uh, and mostly that's because of um, the job duties um, and the amount of expectations that are placed on them. I was very fortunate in my last uh, place that I taught in that where I could go to a couple schools um, each day and be able to teach it. But by the time that we got to the end of the day, you know, I might be home by 4.30 or so. And so um, I had relatively normal schedules compared to what some of those those people are doing now. Some of those people that are in the profession now are, are doing 12, 14-hour days almost every single day. And it's just mind boggling to me how much they um, they're taking on. Are they taking it on or are they, is that the, the duties of the job that they have to try to keep up with? Yeah. Um, so there's, it's a double-edged sword. And so um, yeah, they're taking on these duties uh, and they're doing certain things, but some of them might be younger in their careers and not know fully how they can professionally say no to some of these things and, and still retain their job. Uh, and so there might be some band directors that might be giving these duties, not knowing that, that they're overloading people and 
the percussion director might not be confident enough to speak up and say, hey, you know, I don't think I have time to do this and, uh, or I might need some help and whatnot. So yeah. I think it's a combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember seeing that when it started and I was, and like the, particularly the people I knew that were doing it were exceptional teachers, but they, their mental health was in the toilet <laughs> essentially. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I think it's something that is kind of um, it, it's invaded our profession a lot more. And I think it's a lot deeper than what we could give it credit for. But have you ever heard the phrase, the squeaky wheel gets the grease? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that the people that are, are, are changing careers are very vocal on social media. Uh, and so sometimes that attention is being drawn to that. And so um, I'm still trying to figure out, um, is it just a... a um, a few people that were dissatisfied or is there, is it the bulk of it? And my consensus after talking to a lot of people is that a lot of people are dissatisfied with the amount of duties that are going on, but they're just trying to make it work uh, because they're not sure what they can do outside of this. Yeah. Well, and I know sometimes that's a director. I mean, if you, cause if, if you're being very competitive as a director, it's then you will expect and or you'd want people on your team who are going to be as dedicated and that's tough. I mean, that it's, I mean, it's one of those, it's like ideal situation versus practical situation. You know, what can you expect practically from someone who's, you know, working with a program, but as, but as, you know, maybe a free agent or independently working and they are also trying to do other things going on. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that, um, there are some directors that are out there that I know have told their their staff that as long as I'm here in the building, you need to be here. And so yep. um, those directors are there from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and they're expecting the same level of effort from those people. And they might not have told those people they hired until they already had the job and and then the expectations came out, you know. Uh, but then there are others that are uh, have a little bit different mindset that might approach it, that you just do what you need to do. Um, I think some people come into teaching and they they might have these opportunities to to showcase um, their their ensemble a little bit more. So they enter in a lot of competitions, right? And so anytime there's a free weekend from the band stuff, they might have a percussion event. And they kind right. of almost do it to themselves to to have those those extremely busy schedules. But um, uh, there comes a point where I think you just figure out what works more for you. Um, and for your students than anything else. Part of it too is the keeping up with the Joneses is, is yeah. um, as you know, you see school A and school B are all doing this, these competitions. Maybe we need to do the competitions and, and take my students there, not knowing that it might be um, a little bit too taxing on the students or, or even on your own, like you said, the mental health aspect of it. Um, I, I think it's important that we take these breaks every now and then um, to and give yourself resting time, not just physically, but also mentally. In the when you were in the process of teaching high school, after you've done your masters and your undergrad, and, and well, music ed, but also percussion focused. When at what point do you does it hit you that I I I know this is not maybe I mean, this may have been right from the beginning, but was was there a point where you were like, this is not actually what I want my career to be while you're band directing. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, I was open to a lot of opportunities as they were presented. 
I wasn't quite sure that I wanted to be a band director when I first started, but by the time that I ended, I actually could see myself doing it for a while. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and so I, I don't think that it was something that I was getting out of because I didn't like it. I really enjoyed doing what I was doing. I felt like the students I was teaching were playing at an extremely high level and they're playing great repertoire. And, and even at that early age, I was still teaching them how to commission and generate new repertoire and, and play stuff. And, um, and so I just enjoyed the act of making music. Um, yeah. And so when I made the transition to my doctorate and teaching in college, it didn't really feel like that the expectation changed at all. I just changed what I was doing and I was open to the new opportunity and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, one of my biggest personal philosophies is I want to generate new music and I want to play music at a high level. And so as long as I've done that, whether I was teaching or doing a solo performance, I've been creatively fulfilled. That's interesting that you kind of come around to, I could, is it just that you got kind of felt better about your own abilities as a band director? You kind of like figured out what you needed to figure out and you were like, all right, I could, this, this is all right for now. I can really pinpoint it to an, an age actually. Okay. Um, so I've told several friends that I have had birthdays recently. I said, um, you know, my favorite age was 27. And they always ask why. And I said, that's where I felt the most comfortable with myself, not only as a, uh, as a person, but also as a teacher, yeah. where I just really felt like I could do things my way instead of trying to regurgitate what someone taught me how to do it. Um, um, just things started to click around that age. That was right around the middle of my band directing career. And, and, and so that's where you also see, I think my students started to take off right around that time too, because I was allowing them a lot more freedom and opportunity to explore some of their interests. Um, and so for, for example, there was one year, um, we did a, a drumathon at one school that I taught. It was like a 24 hour drumathon. Um, but rather than just playing drumline beats or, or learning exercises, we brought in, um, a tabla player and, and had them teach how to, to do that to high school students. And we had, um, a, a drum set, uh, an hour where every person in the the district um, or in the studio played on a drum set and played a rock beat. And so we had 60 students that year. And um, and so regardless of comfort level, they at least got up there and they played two and four in the back beat. <laughs> uh, and so um, I tried to expose them to a lot of new experiences that wouldn't necessarily pertain to what they're doing in band, but could kind of broaden their musical horizons just a bit more. And we'll get back to Andrew Eldridge and the rest of his story next week. So stay tuned. This week's rave is an appreciation for the life of musician and composer Raymond Helbel, who died this week after a long battle with cancer. I was fortunate to have had both a professional and personal connection to Raymond Helbel over the years. On the personal side, I first got in touch with him when I was a doctoral student at UNCG, learning his marimba solo, Grand Fantasy in C Major, for one of my doctoral recitals. He told me a fascinating story of its publication from his point of view over email, and how a good deal of the original work was actually lost. And if you know the piece, you might know the spot where that begins. In any case, this started somewhat of a friendship. Later on, when my wife and I moved to Missouri to work at Mizzou, 
I found out that he lived in nearby Lebanon, and his wife, Carol Helbill, a now-retired longtime band director and percussion instructor at Lebanon High School, who's best known for running the Mid-Missouri Percussive Arts Trophy, or MPAT, competition at Lebanon for about 15 years. Raymond and I met up at either that or Day of Percussion or the Missouri Music Educators Conference, and we'd chat every year that we'd see each other. At some point in 2009, I was fortunate that he allowed me to premiere a movement of a large work he was writing for marimba, cello, violin, and clarinet at the Odyssey Chamber Music Festival in Columbia. It was a great honor to do so. I always enjoyed my interactions with him because while he was very nice, once you got to know and talk to him, he kept up a very stern outward presence. Any chance to get him to almost smile was a win in my book. And then again, he would open up and it would be great. But I just want to point out, and I don't know if any of you are aware of this, I have a tendency to make jokes every so often. In any case, where his presence was most felt in my life was the music. My first interaction with his music came through what I still consider to be my favorite work for percussion ensemble, his Diabolic Variations. I played this at UNCG in spring 1998, and I got the Kurtali part, still one of the hardest things I've ever learned in my entire life. But it was a great experience of putting it together and getting to play under Dr. Court McLaren's musical vision of the piece was life-altering. Court found the musicality in places I couldn't even figure out, and I can honestly say I've never heard another group get it to the level that we were able to get it to. Additionally, I made the decision to both perform multiple times and record for my marimba album a version of Raymond Helbel's Toccata Fantasy in E-flat minor. This is one of the most challenging pieces I've ever played, and in particular, ever had to try to keep up, and it was a beast to record. I'm happy with the final recorded version, but even happier for those live performance opportunities when I've played the piece. It's a work that really pushes you as a musician, both technically and musically, and for that, I'm forever grateful. So this week, a salute to a great musician, composer, and artist, Raymond Helbel. Best to his widow, Carol, and the rest of the Helbel family in this time, and he will be greatly missed. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next week for part two with Andrew Eldridge. Until then. Thank you.